for the bicycle geeks in the audience, tell us about your bike before we get into the other stuff. Oh my God, it's so cool. Hi, and welcome back to the Natural Curiosity Project. This is the second in my series of interviews with my friend Scott Luria, who recently set off on a one-year, 15,000-mile bicycle journey across the country. In this episode, I caught up with him in northern New York, 350 miles into the trip. Well, my bike is a custom-made titanium road touring bicycle, which means it looks like a 10-speed with drop handlebars. And uh, like the traditional bikes we all rode around when we were younger, but it is specifically designed to carry weight. The geometry is such that it can handle heavy loads over the front wheel and the back wheel without uh, getting flat tires or breaking spokes or what we call squirrely handling, where the bike rattles around at high speeds or when you try to turn because the weight is poorly balanced. So that is the heart of what the bike is. I've had touring bicycles my whole life because I love this long-distance touring. But this is the nicest one ever because... What's unique about this is that it has a different kind of transmission. It does not have the classic front and rear derailleur that all the bikes I've had up until now have. It has an internal gearbox, reminiscent, maybe some of your uh, listeners remember back in the 60s and 70s when there were those three speeds. They're often Raleigh's and they had a uh, internal hub, an internal gear hub in the back with three speeds back there. It was made by Sturme Archer. And a little flimsy lever on the handlebar that would switch between the three gears. Well, it's that concept, except it's much fancier. It has 18 gears. It's much more efficient. And, and the, the, uh, the gearbox is not in the rear hub. It's in the center of the bicycle uh, called the bottom bracket where the pedals go through. Made in Germany, it's called a pinion, like rack and pinion steering. But it's a pinion drive. It's made by a couple of former uh, engineers at Porsche, the automobile company in Germany. And it has been a total dream. There's no maintenance. The only thing you do is once every year you, you uh, change 50 cc's of oil. But otherwise, there's nothing to do. There's no tweaking it. The, the gear shifts are all clean and precise. Uh, you can shift multiple gears at once. You can shift when you're standing still. And the best thing about it is that there's no chain. There's a carbon belt instead a continuous carbon belt that is much more durable than a chain is also clean. There is no need to put oil on it and it stays totally clean. Every few weeks you hose it off and that's the entire maintenance of the whole device. That is, that is absolutely amazing. Okay. So I have one other sort of logistics question for you, Scott, you're traveling with electronic gear. You've got your phone, you've got a tablet with you and so on. How are you charging these things? This is a great question. In fact, I, I have an upcoming chapter in my blog called power struggles because it is a constant challenge. Right now I'm staying in motels, so it's easy. There are lots of outlets and I brought like three or four little charger doohickeys and I have a whole forest of charger cords. And that's fine when you have outlets available profusely, but pretty soon when it gets warmer, I'm going to be camping and then electricity becomes a real premium. I, you know, when, when you go to a campground, um, there are the electric sites and there are the tent sites which have no electricity. So I'm always trying to cage power from people. Sometimes I try to sweet talk the campground owners into uh, letting me stay at tent site rate in an electric campsite, figuring I'm only drawing like five milliamps of power, not like these big RVs. And sometimes they go for that and sometimes they don't. I have a couple of, uh, they're called power banks. I think you know what I'm talking about. Those, uh, those set of portable batteries that can 
recharge your cell phone two or three times and you, 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 you plug them in, you know, when you go into a restaurant or whenever, it's like you're always searching around for that outlet, you know, because it's like <laughs> you're always trying to cage some free watts out of something. So if you're in a restaurant, you know, uh, or any place where you see an outlet, um, in, in, I'm not flying, but in an airport, you know what I'm talking about, uh, you can recharge your power banks. I did try for a while to have a solar panel with me, but the ones that would, in order for those to work properly, they have to be aimed in full sunlight directly at the sun, and I can't do that while I'm moving. I would sort of fold it over the front uh, tent of my, of my bike and have it you know, out exposed to the, the sun all day long, at the end of the day, I charged myself from from about 28% to about 36%. That was about how much I got out of the solar panel. So I, I left that behind this time. And then finally, my bike also has a generator in the front hub, um, a three-watt generator, which is made by Schmidt, another German company. And it's remarkably efficient. It's beautiful. And it, it powers a very brilliant headlight and taillight 24-7. I always tour with headlight and taillight on because I've seen people get hit in broad daylight because cars just don't see them and so i can divert some of that juice to my cell phone and i do i just did that today it doesn't really charge the cell phone but i use it as a nav system and if i have that going all day the charge doesn't run out it's just it keeps the charge from completely running out so um, if i turn the headlight off i get more juice but i don't ever turn the headlight off so that's sort of how i'm managing and it will be more of an issue once i get to uh places where there's no hookup Gotcha. Well, we'll you know we'll we'll sort of track that as we go along to see how things are going. So you left uh, you left Vermont on the seventeenth of April, twenty twenty one, I believe, and this is our first catch up since since you left, really. So let me ask you, where are you, and how many miles have you traveled uh, since uh, since you left? I'm in downtown Syracuse at the comically luxurious Crown Plaza Hotel. I got that because I, I got a deal on Priceline. It was cheaper than a grotty little motel. I could have stayed at off of the New York State Thruway in the miserable town of Weedsport, uh, New York. But you know, but because it, it's a weekday and because it's the off season, I was able to get this great room on the 19th floor with a killer view, and I'm watching the sunset right now. That's awesome. So that's where I am. But that's my, my, my usual accommodations have either been at the motels like I was telling you about. Usually, you know, places like Super Eights or Days Inns that typically are right off the exit of the New York State Thruway, which is not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> but I have, on one night, I stayed at something called Warm Showers. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that. That is a network of bicycle tourists who put each other up at their homes, and then they reciprocate, you know, uh, uh, when they're on, on tour. And there's a website called warmshowers.org. It's only for bike tourists. It's not for hikers or for, you know, tourists who are driving around in cars um, or in trains or planes. Typically, they, they uh, provide a warm shower, and either a place in the backyard to pitch your tent or more commonly in, in, in this weather, uh, a spare bedroom. You know, you're sharing your house. And so it's not like saying in a motel, you, you don't have free reign of the place. You have to be considerate, but it, it's a free service. And the idea is that you pay it forward. I signed up to do it, but I'm not doing it yet. When I return from my tour, I will be very happy to host bike tourists that come through Vermont. Uh, so that's where I'm staying. That's really cool. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it again tomorrow. You kind of, there's this website where, you know, you can find the spots on the map, like you'd find a, a hotel on the map. And then you, they typically like a couple of days notice. I, I asked the person for tomorrow night whether I could stay there. And I was surprised to hear that, yes, they, I'm, that they could do it. Uh, the one night that I did spend was in South Glens Falls, New York, with a lovely couple named Pam and Steve. They weren't even bicycle tourists, but they're 
sister, Beth, had toured all the way across the country, and she stayed in warm showers, and she was just raving about it. And for that reason, even though uh, Pam and Steve don't even bike tour at all, they were paying it forward for their sister. I love it. I love it. What a what what a kind and and kind of cool community to be part of. But then again, you know, I I would expect no less, especially after knowing you and kind of hearing the people you've met along the way and so on. You've been writing for a very very long time, but that actually brings up an interesting question. So, who's the coolest person you've met since you left? This is a hard question because there's been so many cool people. So I'm going to have to pick one. I'm not sure he's the coolest, but he's pretty cool. Um, I was holed up for three days or three nights in uh, one of those grotty motels in Amsterdam, New York, a Super 8 right on the throughway, because the wind was just, the weather was just awful. You remember that snowstorm that we had in Burlington? Well, we had it here too. And um, the wind was gusting to 50 miles per hour right in my face, you know, right out of the west-northwest, the direction that I'm heading. And that basically, the wind is the most important factor on any bike tour. Everybody will tell you that. It provides the, the vast majority of the resistance. You know, bikes are so efficient. There's almost no friction from the wheels, and they're so beautifully designed to be efficient. So the thing that slows you down is wind resistance. So when, when you have even a 20-mile-per-hour headwind, it almost blows you to a stop, and you have to struggle just to go two or three or four miles an hour. And unlike a hill, you know, hills are, are oppressive in some ways as you grunt up them, but there's always a downhill on the other side. There's no downhill with the wind. It's always in your face, and your only respite is if you're in a clump of trees or a bend on the road where it's temporarily held at some bay. So uh, because of that, I decided not to move at all for uh, two full days. Uh, I have a chapter about that in my blog called Taking a Zero. So I, I was holed up, sort of marooned in this, in this motel. Also marooned in the same motel was a cross-country truck driver, a long-haul trucker named Michael, who I chatted with for quite a while. I've always thought that long-haul truckers are kind of romantic, like, like the cowboys of the modern age. Um, they're the ones who you know, deliver all the food that we get and all the goods that we have. He had his own 18-wheeler, and he was laid up in Amsterdam because it was missing a part, had to be special ordered. So he just stuck in this, uh, uh, in this motel, you know, sort of bored out of his mind and frustrated because time is money. Every day he didn't work with money not in his pocket. He was a private owner. He, he didn't get paid except when he actually d- delivered the goods. But I was quite struck that he's somebody who grew up in Texas, Plano, Texas. Have you heard of that? So he grew up in Texas, and he said, I didn't, I didn't pry, but... He said he'd made some bad choices, the upshot of which was that he lost custody of his four-year-old son, who he loves more than anything in the world, and he has dedicated himself to trying to become worthy once again of getting custody, at least partial custody, back of his son. And what he's doing, even though it didn't appear he had much of an education, he, he blew me away because he seemed so erudite and well-informed about stuff. I just, I'm not the typical truck driver temperament. He is looking into the field of hydroponic agriculture, and and he he had lots to say about that and knew all about organic. I couldn't believe it about organic chemistry and carbohydrates and uh, you know and and energy from the sun and and irrigation and all those. I don't know anything about this. I was a bio major, but I don't I didn't you know do plant husbandry. Um, so I, I was quite struck, and we and we talked for you know when I was doing my laundry and sewing uh, up a, a, a tear in one of my clothing pieces. Um, we chatted for over an hour, and I was just totally fascinated by this guy from such different background than me, fairly modest background with a profession I don't understand very well, who was still trying so hard to better himself, you know, to um, to, to, to feed into what's an exciting new form of agriculture, you know, which is going to be important with this whole thing of climate change, and um, who was trying to uh, 
you know, turn the corner on his life and make himself worthy, or at least, you know, give the appearance of being worthy to be in his son's life again. I was just so touched by that. Well, it seems like kind of uh, an ideal first person for you to run into that you're that you want to document, and I know there are going to be a lot of others. So let me let me move on to one other question, which is, you know, when you're on a road trip like this, one of our mutual favorite books, Blue Highways, it's, it's the adventures along the road, right? I mean, I know that in my travels, I've, you know, I still think about the fact that I got to see the world's largest statue of the Jolly Green Giant, and I got to visit the Spam Museum. There is a Spam Museum, Scott. I, I mean, it's... It, it, let me tell you, I mean, you know, it's it's in Minnesota, and the thing that amazed me about it was when I was there, they said, and it's a beautiful facility, it's very big, and they talk about the history of spam, and we're not talking about email here, we're talking about, you know, meat byproducts, right? And they said to me, you're very lucky to be here uh, because we're moving. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, well, we've, we've outgrown our space. And I said, what, what could you possibly be adding that causes you to outgrow this, in, this immense space that you have here? But they were, they, they were growing. So... I know that, you know, you have several sort of plans to see, you know, your own form of the world's largest frying pan or ball of string. Um, what have you seen so far? Anything in particular? Let me think about that. I, I have many aspirations. Um, nothing quite as quirky as the biggest ball of twine, but I, I have a lot of those places in, in the future um, that, that I, I want to see. I'm trying to think of anything I've seen so far. Oh, well, and not so much super quirky, but I think that the whole hydraulics of the Erie Canal are absolutely fascinating. What, what I've been doing, my, my basic route was, was to go due south to the uh, city of Troy, New York, north of Albany, which is where it's really the beginning of the Erie Canal. What I was following was Lake Champlain and uh, the Champlain Canal that connects to the Hudson, and then hanging a, a, a Ralphie and, and heading west um, on the Erie Canal, and just sort of seeing how that was that that was the engineering achievement of the century, or at least you know of, of the decade, way back in the 1820s, and it represented the first chance for Americans to be able to easily get through this this curtain of the Appalachian Mountains that was sort of hemming them in um, on the East Coast. It was almost an impenetrable barrier, but this visionary governor, Dewitt Clinton, decided that 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 they could you know take advantage of the Mohawk breaking through the the Appalachian uh, ramparts and then continuing canal all the way to Lake Erie when you're on the level with all the other Great Lakes, and therefore you can tap over into the Mississippi River system, carrying your stuff not in a Conestoga wagon, rattling on the bumpy roads, but on a big barge that can carry a ton of gear very cheaply. The way that they made this work, the way they built the locks uh, around the rapids that they did have to deal with, um, was just amazing, especially when they built it in the 1820s. Incredible. Seeing that was just, you know, I, I remember reading about it. I, I just can't get enough of it. It's, it's the bicentennial of it now. Um, and they've restored, you know, the, the canal has kind of fallen on hard times. People don't ship much by canals anymore. But when it was in its heyday in the 1820s, it was like the Silicon Valley of the world. People came from all over to see this amazing technological feat. And suddenly it, it totally transformed the uh, westward expansion. It turned New York into, into the Empire State. And it turned New York City, the gateway to all this on the Hudson, into the most important city in, uh, in, in America. And all these other towns that sprung up along it that were because of the canal, like Albany, Troy, Schenectady, Utica, Rochester, Buffalo, uh, all these existed because of the canal. And because the canal represented the epitome of technological in, um, innovation, these places became that too. I mean, you know, uh, 
Uh, that's where GE got its start. That's where, uh, well, later on, uh, Xerox and Kodak were in, in Rochester. Remington was in uh, Utica. And there's many other examples I, I can't recall. It was where people flocked to because uh, it was the happening place like Silicon Valley is now. Um, also, a lot of religions started along there. Uh, most prominently, the Mormon religion started outside of Rochester. I'm going to go right by the hill where that was where Joseph Smith got the vision from the angel Moroni right there on the Erie Canal. And so it's not a great ball of twine, but it is fascinating that this, uh, this crazy idea, this ditch was responsible for much of the expansion of our country and certainly for the preeminence of New York City and New York State as the gateway to the West. You know, Scotty, even though, you know, you and I uh, took vastly different directions in terms of career choice, the one thing that we have in common is this incredible passion for knowledge and this sort of insatiable curiosity, which, you know, I, I salute you for. And I think that this series that we're going to have you on periodically is going to be a just a wonderful thing to listen to as we go along. So first of all, thank you for taking the time. I know that, you know, your, your time is precious and, and, you know, you're probably tired at the end of the day, but I do have to ask you one last question. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Any observation, any realization, anything you learned that you think is particularly important that they can think about before the next time we hear from you? It's going to sound like a platitude, but I've just been struck at how I hate, you're going to laugh, how good people have been. Almost everybody I, I come into contact with, people who are very different from me, not just, um, you know, vocationally or educationally, but also just, I can tell politically, they're just good people. I, I just can't get over it. Um, you know, uh, every motel clerk has been kind to me. People I, I run into in convenience stores. I, I have to admit this, this, this uh, bike is a real conversation starter. Um, people are, are, are quite interested in it and often with suggestions about uh, where to stay or, you know, what to watch out for, things that I should see in, in a place where I'm, I'm coming up. You know, just, just today I, I went to the birthplace of uh, the Wizard of Oz author, L. Frank Baum, and uh, saw his birthplace and all the streets there are paved in yellow brick roads. You know, little, little Easter eggs like that. I'm constantly finding at the uh, advice of people who just told me about them along the way. So I'm really looking forward to, to seeing a part of the country I've never seen, the so-called flyover parts of the country, which are a complete mystery to me, just to see what's it like to live there and what are the people really like, not just what we hear about in the papers or that we are tribalized by, by, uh, by politics, but what are they like you know, at the, at the ground level? Well, then I think that is going to be the real value that you you bring to all the people that listen here, you know, as we all travel along beside you. So thanks for that. What's your plan for tomorrow? Tomorrow, I have to go a, a little bit longer than usual, about 60 miles to one of these warm showers places. The day after that, I'm visiting my dear cousin in Rochester, who is a uh, director of the theater department at Nazareth College outside of Rochester. I, I didn't tell you, I've gone 350 miles to date, to date so far. And that's including those two days when I, I didn't do anything at all when I was stuck at the, in the weather. And there's more details on my blog at scottluria.org. And I'm keeping that up every day if people are curious to hear more about it. I, I, I love uh, hecklers. I love feedback. That's part of the fun. A number of people have texted me about what I'm writing, and I, I can get the text off, and I'll answer them right there while I'm still pedaling. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for, Scott. <laughs> exactly. Well, I know. So, so far, I crave the attention. I, I might... I might uh, go overboard, but so far it hasn't happened. I'm just delighted. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, listen, man. Hey, listen, thank you. Uh, we'll catch up to you in a week or so and see how you're faring. I want to thank you for taking the time and uh, look forward to hearing about the next week's full of adventures. 
Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.